Welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast brought to you by the EMDR International Association, or EMDRIA. I am your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, we are talking with EMDR certified therapist, consultant, and trainer, Mara Tesler-Stein, about EMDR therapy during pregnancy. Mara splits her time between Lincolnwood, Illinois, and Jerusalem, Israel. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with EMDR certified therapist, consultant, and trainer, Dr. Mara Tesler-Stein, about EMDR therapy and pregnancy. Thank you, Mara, for being here today. We are so happy that you said yes. Thank you for inviting me. So, Mara, tell us, how did you become an EMDR therapist? Well, it's it's sort of funny. I've been trained in EMDR and using it for 20 years, and I was already a licensed clinical psychologist working increasingly with the perinatal population, and I kept finding that many times working with people after a perinatal loss a traumatic delivery, a premature birth. And then often people were pregnant again, coming in to see me because they were getting reactivated from the trauma and they would get better. And then they would hit what I visualize as like a cul-de-sac. They would just sort of keep going round and round and round. And at that time I'd been hearing about EMDR and I thought, all the things that people unfamiliar with EMDR thought like, oh, it's the flavor of the month. Oh, that sounds wacky. And then it occurred to me that perhaps I ought to get trained in this thing that I thought was wacky before I decided what I thought about it. And so I went ahead and I started my EMDR training, which was great. But the thing that really solidified my understanding and passion about utilizing this, this model was that the very first time I used EMDR therapy in the office with a client after a perinatal loss who was pregnant again and who was getting activated, it really felt like magic. And so that's really how I got started and just has just gone up from there. Grown from there. Well, you're not the first person on this podcast to say that. They were a little hesitant (laughs) about it. It sounded a little too good to be true. Is it pixie dust? Is it magic? Is it snake oil? Mm -hmm. Those are all the terms that we have talked about on this podcast. So totally, um, we and for the clients and for all the people that you've trained, we are happy that you found EMDR therapy and uh, that it works for all of those populations. So thank you for all that work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. What is your favorite part of working with EMDR and pregnancy? Well, so, you know, I always conceptualize and talk about the perinatal period as a whole, which certainly includes pregnancy, conception, pregnancy, birth, as a, as a really important developmental period. So this is my area of specialty, my area of passion. And so seeing pregnant people, seeing families who are working on family building and, and really getting to, to hold them and engage them and getting to know what's going on with them around past losses, past traumas, areas of absence in development, things that are that are missing, where we need to fill in the gaps. So f- the most exciting thing for me is that opportunity to get in there real with a really powerful, efficient, compassionate, strength-based, client-centered method and relationship-based method that supports their development. I mean, that's what I see myself as being there to do is to be developmentally supportive and relationship-based with people. And I just see our work with EMDR as a, a really phenomenal method and avenue for doing that. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. You know, I mean, I've had two children and no pregnancy losses, thankfully. Um, but, you know, 
even if you're in a unhealthy pregnancy, it's still mm -hmm. scary. All of the things that could possibly yeah. go wrong while you're pregnant or during the labor and delivery yeah. or, you know, postpartum when you have a newborn at home and you yeah. trying to manage all of your things and then manage this new baby. And so thank goodness Definitely. that, you know, EMDR therapy is out there for people who need it. So we're going to dig in right. a little bit later about, you know, mm -hmm. some of the myths and everything, because I mm -hmm. we see some chatter about that. So it'll be good to talk Definitely. about that here today. So what successes have you seen regarding use the EMDR therapy in pregnancy? Well, the the process of kind of getting to know a person's internal and historical landscape when they're coming in in this really vulnerable state, because being in this perinatal period, people are, are vulnerable. And that is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for heal healing. So, you know, I may see a parent coming in or a prospective parent coming in feeling really anxious about what it will mean to be a mother to a baby when they haven't been mothered in ways mm -hmm. that they feel like they can then utilize and see as a model or even having, you know, uh, an available parent that they they want to lean on or that they can lean on. Or for example, somebody who has had, you know, some uh, devastating loss, the death of a baby, for example, in a prior pregnancy and longing so much for another child and not wanting to lose hold of their attachment, their bonding to the baby who died and being so afraid of what's going to happen with a subsequent pregnancy. So there's healing to be done around the loss. And then there's developmental support to engage in together around development of parental identity, strengthening the bond, the growing bond between parent and and, and baby, wherever they are in that process. When you've had, you know, I've had seen many parents who have had premature babies or babies in newborn intensive care. And wow, talk about layers of trauma, layers of loss, layers of rupture to, to developing sense of self as a parent to this baby, even if you have older children. So I've seen so much shifting happening for people, kind of walking in the door, feeling like failures, believing themselves to be not good enough, being afraid they're going to fail their baby or that they have already failed their baby, feeling also rupture or disconnect with, with their primary partner, whether that's the other parent or, or another person in their lives, whether it's with their own you know, family of origin uh, could be also with close friends. Like if my experience is different than yours, then who am I in this peer group? Right. If we think about, if we think about our core themes, right, our trauma themes now, we really have become so much more aware that belonging is one of the really important ones. And in my research over the years with families after perinatal trauma, you know, we talk about um, the three core tasks that that families face, the parents face in a perinatal trauma. And one of them has to do with managing those relationships and all the different layers, yeah. the relationship no, with the baby, medical team, all the people. Yeah. It's good that you brought that up because it's hard for us as humans to accept that sometimes things just happen in nature. Yes. Because we can't, I think it's part of our sense of we have to control things or we could have controlled things mm -hmm. to have, mm. have a better positive outcome when really you really could not have. You know, it was humanly no. impossible for you to prevent a premature baby situation or your baby possibly dying in the womb mm. or dying post-birth. And and so it's it's hard for us, I think, as humans to to realize mm -hmm. that we sometimes just don't have control or say in things that happen in our lives. But Particularly for parents. Yeah. There is this myth that parents should know that we should be omniscient and omnipotent somehow, 
And I will hear a lot of times parents, particularly pregnant people say, how could I not have known something was wrong with my baby? Or how could I not have known that my baby died uh, in utero or something yeah. was wrong? I remember when my children were, were newborns and, and especially my daughter, you know, she had a latching issue. I was trying to nurse her and, mm. you know, everyone's like, oh, nursing is so beneficial for the baby and it's so much mm. healthier and the mother, daughter, mother, child bond. And you're like, yes, that's great. Except when the infant has trouble latching on, <laughs> you know, right. Except when it doesn't work, <laughs> then it becomes a lot harder to have that yeah. happening. And so, yes. um, but something that you perceive or that you have been told of your whole life is supposed to be mm -hmm. natural. And you're like, what's wrong with me? This mm -hmm. is not working. And so it's good yeah. that we're getting the word out there that sometimes things are not regular and that's okay. And here's how we handle it. And here's how we can help. So, so many different roads to yeah. get to the same outcome and so much sense of self is wrapped up in all of those things. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and, and everything from, I shouldn't have complications if I did everything right. Look, I went into preterm labor with my twins at 24 weeks and I felt like an absolute failure. Wow. That there must be something wrong with me that this happened. But it's not uncommon for women to uh -uh. go or birthing people to go into labor early if they're having multiple births. So that's well, not I went into I went into labor significantly earlier yeah, than you would is, expect, even with yeah. twins. I mean, with twins, you'll see like 36, 37 weeks. Right. Uh, but that feeling of like, okay, wait, this is not supposed to be happening right now. Right. This is, this is not how this is supposed to go. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't have that on my calendar for today, yeah. nor my bingo card. Yeah. No. And my bag is not packed for the hospital. My bag is not packed. This and we don't not, have yeah. car seats in the car yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Totally. No. Yeah. Well, and one of one of my memories from bed rest, I was on bed rest for six and a half weeks in the hospital trying Ooh. not to deliver my, my very small twins. And a nurse from newborn intensive care would come up periodically to talk to me. And so, you know, this will give you an idea of like, you're talking about breastfeeding or nursing. And about, you know, our dreams. And I, I said to this nurse, I'm still pregnant and I'm sitting in the bed, hoping to be pregnant longer saying, so, so do you think I'll be able to nurse them together? Like simultaneously and just the look on her face. Oh, you're so just, innocent, sweetheart. Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. Because me having no idea how difficult it can be for many people anyway, yeah. to get babies latching and nursing a preemies yeah, and then preemie twins. Yeah. Yeah. Complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I see all of this stuff in my office, this kind of stuff. Well, that's a good segue to our next question, which is, are there any myths that you would like to bust mm. about EMDR <laughs> and pregnancy? And if you have too many, just list the top three or five. Yeah. Well, you know, the big one that, that I see coming up and that has led me to be, to do quite a bit of reviewing the literature in this area is this idea that doing reprocessing during pregnancy is somehow dangerous. And so I think that probably any of the other myths around EMDR during pregnancy kind of come out of that overarching umbrella. Right. Um, this idea that somehow we're going to do harm by doing reprocessing. And so it was very confusing to me when I first started hearing this from people. Um, and then I started asking when when I would hear this, where's your the research to support that? Um, what's the data that you're using to say stop? Don't don't do this during pregnancy. Right. And what would happen is either people would sort of disappear, <laughs> like if it was on social media, I'd be like, <laughs> oh, not answering or, that one. Not answering. Yeah, Hot potato. 
done. Yeah. yeah. Or it would be, I would hear, well, better to be careful, which is really the line in Francine's book, which I think is the origin of all of this. And I'm going to speak to that in a minute. Or I would hear something about cortisol, something, something cortisol. So I thought, okay, so, so I, I need to make sure I'm understanding this. I need to consult with, with various experts, you know, in the physiology, both of the MDR and of pregnancy. And also I'm a perinatal specialist. So I have heard this kind of omission bias, which is what this is before for many years around antidepressant use in pregnancy. Now I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't prescribe, but I make these referrals quite regularly when appropriate. And I cannot tell you how many times I have heard psychiatrists who are not perinatal specialists or sometimes even obstetricians, although I must say, I think this is improving in recent years, say to someone when they become pregnant, who's been on an SSRI, Mm -hmm. you have to get off your SSRI or just in popular culture. Certainly we also, people get this idea and that is absolutely not correct. And there is a mountain of data to support the safety of SSRI use. And so similarly, this idea that doing nothing or stopping to do something therapeutic when there is some concern about a side effect or, well, do we have enough data when we have no data to support that it's adverse? Is it what's better to do? And so the omission bias is this heuristic that is that in medicine is very common actually, and is runs the risk of being a cognitive bias, a cognitive distortion that says better to do nothing than to do this, this other thing without actually looking at risks and benefits of inaction and action. I mean, you've got a woman who's, you know, you're pregnant for 40 weeks. That is Mm -hmm. a long time to be without your medication if you need it or a long time to be without therapy if you need it. Right. And uh, my goodness, that's almost a whole year going without those things that help your mental health. And so that's right. And we have a mountain of data in perinatal mental health that demonstrates the adverse effects of untreated symptomatic post-traumatic stress, depression, and anxiety during pregnancy, as well as in the postpartum. And those negative impacts affect a developing fetus, affect the pregnancy itself, and affect that child once born throughout their life. So if you're comparing risks and benefits, we really need to look at what is it that we think we're doing? So this is another question for me. That's a point I I would say to people, what is it that you think we're doing to the body during reprocessing phases that is so dangerous? And so then I went into the EMDR literature and there again is lots of lovely data to show that the reprocessing phases of EMDR are pro-parasympathetic, meaning what we see is we see reduction. We see some elevation in heart rate and then reduction by the end of the session. We see elevation and reduction in so stress symptoms. So there's a very brief elevation and then a reduction and then the reduction stays, mm-hmm. which we all know when we're doing EMDR therapy in our offices, right? We see this right. constantly. Right. Um, but this idea that any amount of distress or disturbance is going to send cortisol through the roof and do damage is, is not evidence-based. I mean, I have found nothing to demonstrate that. And in fact, 
it almost leads you to think like, okay, so you have a pregnant person. What are you going to do? Wrap them in bubble wrap and put yeah. them in, in, you know, cold, yeah. you know. How many people are pregnant and your cortisol levels increase because of stress? Just regular, normal, well, everyday stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you have to ha- you normal handle stress. it. You don't, yes. you don't all of a sudden stop becoming stressed out because you're pregnant. That's um, right. And I, also, interestingly, so here's an interesting co- uh, cortisol tidbit. Cortisol levels actually increase naturally over the course of pregnancy. And it is thought to be a buffer, a way of protecting the developing fetus and the pregnant person from the intensity of whatever inputs may be coming either from the environment or internally. And so you get this kind of muffling effect anyway. So cortisol itself is not, it's not all good, all bad, just like stress. It's not like all stress is bad. We have different kinds of stress. We have, we have stress and then we have the reaction of the person's body to stress and their recovery from stress. All of these things are factors that we need to look into. And if you look at the phases of EMDR therapy, actually, it, it all really lines up. If you think about how are we preparing people, how are we assessing what needs to be done, what the problem is, how do we prepare right? Where's the shock absorption? Where's the resiliency? Where's our adaptive information? What's the recovery capacity of a person when they're distressed to shift states, right? And to come back to a more contained place, a more grounded place. And then can they maintain dual attention for reprocessing phases, right? So pregnant or not, we need to be doing all of that, right? Right. Are there any specific complexities or difficulties with using EMDR therapy with this population? So, okay. So with this population, when I think about perinatal mental health in general, I have so many things that I can say. Let me start with pregnancy specifically. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's so funny because, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of become this person who is talking about EMDR used during pregnancy so much. And I think it's really just because I've dived into the literature and have read about it, but you know, my passion is just so much broader than that in my knowledge base and experience. Um, but I do think of it as all intertwined. So, so if you think about pregnancy, right, you have, you have people coming in, sometimes they come in at the end of a pregnancy and we have, you know, time crunch considerations where somebody may have had a traumatic delivery in a prior pregnancy for whatever the, whatever made it traumatic, they're coming in and maybe they're 30 weeks pregnant. And you think, okay, I've got hopefully if they go to term 10 weeks or right. so to do this work well i i don't yet know what the history of this person is prior to pregnancy prior to any pregnancy right somebody coming in with a history of complex trauma you know what sort of what's their internal self state like what are their res- how resourced are they walking in the door so i don't know you know i may have somebody for whom staying in, in our phase two preparation resourcing work is would be appropriate for them regardless of their pregnancy status. And yet here I have somebody where there's there's strong motivation to want to reduce and re, to re, reduce the chronic stress, which is something we do worry about in pregnancy, right? Untreated PTSD, untreated anxiety and depression, it, it falls into the category of toxic stress. And chronic stress hits that toxic stress criterion. And so that's where we see those adverse impacts. So if I've got somebody coming in and I have a limited, very limited amount of time before delivery and and, and the remainder of the pregnancy, part of me is thinking, I really want to 
see if we can clear some of this trauma. But if I've got somebody here for whom that's really not accessible because perhaps they can't maintain dual attention yet, right? Or, you know, I mean, that's really kind of the bottom line, right? Are they well-resourced enough to keep a foot in the present moment? Can I keep them kind of in that space? So then I would think about, you know, some of our other procedures and and ways of working to help get somebody able to utilize standard protocol, you know, that can help to turn down the heat on that traumatic memory so that perhaps they can maintain dual attention. So I so so you know I think that as clinicians we need our fellow specialists to consult with and to talk to and to say, okay, I'm feeling a real pull to want to do this. And there's a part of me that's like, ooh, am I gonna, you know, is this going to be too much for this person? You know, how you know, how would you proceed? What do you think? And so, you know, I just really encourage people to find community mm-hmm. to think through these, some of these clinical dilemmas. Um, and to remember that phase two work is also very powerful. Yeah. You know, and not to minimize that as well. Because very often people, when we do this phase two work with them, they themselves, some of the some of the trauma starts to kind of untangle and digest just organically because what was missing was that adaptive information. Mm-hmm. That's good. Thank you. Mara, how do you practice cultural humility? Oh, I listen a lot. I listen a lot. You know, there's so many layers to 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 culture and to diversity. And all I can tell you is the more I learn, the less I know. And so the really working to, to surround myself with people who, who, who know things that I don't know, mm-hmm. who have life experiences that are different than mine, and who are curious and who are receptive to my wanting to understand more deeply what these different experiences are like. And, and I, I'm thinking about all kinds of experiences, whether they be, you know, with, with racial diversity, with religious diversity, diversity in things like disability, language, and, you know, drawing on my own experiences as a way to remember how unique each person's experience is. I used to work for a CEO many years ago who talked about his hiring philosophy of staff. And he said, you know, I hire people who don't necessarily have the skill sets that I have, but they fit in, in terms of our staff and our, and our Mm -hmm. vision and our mission for and the organization that we're working for. And that's what you do when, as a, as a boss or a leader or a manager, you know, and so Mm -hmm. we should take that concept out of the workplace and put it into our personal lives and fill in those gaps with people who are different than us because you learned so much more. You know, I grew up a military brat and, and, you know, grew Mm -hmm. up on army bases and you learn very quickly as a young child, if you don't want to play with people who are different than you, you're not going to have a lot of friends because, you know, we lived across the street from the Mexican couple who lived next door to the Iranian couple who lived across the street from the black couple Mm -hmm. who lived next to us, all of of the children, we all played together. And so we were literally Mm -hmm. a melting pot at that point. And so you kind of learn that, 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 the world is this big, huge world and people don't look and act and think like you do. And mm-hmm. and so it's okay to, to surround yourselves with right. different thought. Right. And I would say, I would add one more element that I, I, I return to over and over again for myself, which is 
to be open to this idea that you may not know what you think you know. You know, I think that in lots of spaces, we develop certain ideas that are based on some degree of information, but so often our information is incomplete or not nuanced. And so this idea that that there may be some things in this, in a particular domain, a cultural domain, that you think you you have a handle on. And you may not know all the things or enough or, or certain a certain subset of things. And so being open to considering and, and listening when somebody says, well, did you know about this, this aspect or this fact? And sometimes it's really hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, ch- it can challenge a sense of yourself in the space and a sense of your relationship to others who are different or others in that space or to people who, who you think are like you, who maybe turns out, oh, there actually are some distinctions here uh, that I haven't, I haven't quite recognized. Right. So it's just, it's just endlessly nuanced. Yes. I think that's a good answer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mara, do you have a favorite free EMDR related resource that you would suggest either for the public or other EMDR therapists? I do okay. at the touchstone Institute. We have started this cool thing called Tuesday Tea with Touchstone, and we have invited many people on our training team, some of my consultants in training, facilitators who who we adore and who work with us when we do basic trainings, who are specialists and subspecialists in different areas of perinatal mental health. And they just have this phenomenal knowledge base and experience base and and sort of different cultural points of view. And so as we've invited them in to just talk about their passion and talk about um, an area of expertise for them, we call it, we do that for an hour every other Tuesday. And that's our Tuesday tea. And those offerings are free. So they're, they're streamed live on Facebook and then they are available. We're in the process of making them available on our training page. Uh, for the Touchstone Institute as well. And they're going to keep going. So we've had, we've had, you know, in-depth talks about phase two resourcing, again, with an anti-oppression lens, a diversity lens, a perinatal lens, complex trauma, um, looking at neurodivergence is coming up in two weeks. We just have, we're, we're booked out through the end of this year and we're, we've got people you know, ready to ready to schedule into 2024. And so we hope this will be a, a library. We also have, speaking of library, we have we have on our website a list of both internal and external external resources that we've made available. So lots of podcast interviews. I've done a whole bunch of podcast interviews and so have members of my team that are just wonderful, you know, just such generosity in our community. Yeah. So if you come to our website and look and f- you can filter for for podcasts, you can filter for articles. There's an article I did recently for the Go With That magazine for Emdria, right? So there's, th- so that's a perinatal mental health focused one. The podcast interviews that are on our website are also focused in perinatal mental health across different, different areas. So, so lots and lots out there and we wanted to be a resource to like a one-stop place, at least for people to be able to find a whole variety of resources. And also we have a, a therapist directory of specialists who've trained with us. Now we primarily taught EMDR and EMDR advanced courses. We do have now some courses that are not only EMDR specific, but you can look at our, uh, if you're looking for a referral for a therapist who is a perinatal specialist, who is 
knowledgeable about the integration of EMDR and perinatal mental health. We have this free, the directory is free to the therapists who are on it and of course, free to, to people to search it. Great. If you send me the link, I'll include it in the description for the podcast so people can, can go check it out. Thank you. That's very generous. We appreciate that. Oh, our pleasure. I really would just want to support the community and the community is, is also just so warm and welcoming and so generous. And really anybody who has an inkling of an interest in perinatal mental health, just know that you know, there's there's no entry exam, you know, <laughs> come on, come on over, come in and join us. And, you know, we really just want to help support you because really every therapist, every EMDR therapist at some point has had, does have, or will have somebody in their office where a perinatal issue has impacted them. Correct. And correct. so we just want to help you navigate and orient. Yeah, absolutely. What would you like people outside of the EMDR community to know about EMDR therapy while pregnant? I want people to know that it helps. I want them to know that it will support their development in their sense of self as parent, that it is um, when done using EMDR best practices, it is safe. It is, it will help prepare them for this for the arrival of this baby, no matter what the conditions are. So whether whether you're somebody who knows that your baby has a life-limiting diagnosis, whether you're not sure that your pregnancy is going to continue because there's complications in the state of the pregnancy, EMDR therapy can help you. EMDR therapy can help you to feel, to, to, to connect with the parts of you that know that you can handle what's coming and to reach for supports in your world and to certainly to put out the fire, the trauma starts, right? And then to help, I always think of this as like pulling out the shrapnel from the explosion Mm -hmm. and then supporting the weaving and reweaving of connective tissue in supporting development. That's a great way to put it. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Mara? Come on over to EMDR and Perinatal Mental Health on Facebook and in the, in the SIG here at Emdria. And, you know, just know that, you know, there's a, a growing community of people who are interested in this population who would be thrilled to support you. And if you already are a specialist and, and you didn't know about us, come. We need you. We want you. All right. Thanks, Mara. <laughs> we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guest, Mara Tesler-Stein. Visit www.emdria.org for more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find an EMDR Therapist directory with more than 15,000 therapists available. Like what you hear? Make sure you subscribe to this free podcast wherever you listen. Thank you for listening.